Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrett. And I want to welcome you to episode eight. I've, I've had a bit of feedback from the last episode that looked into the golden era and uh, actually had a few people challenge me on a, on a number of things, uh, largely around the uh, status of, of people like John O'Neill being held in high regard. Seems uh, not everyone's a fan, although um, that certainly wasn't something I was uh, surprised by. I suppose uh, one part of me thinks, well, criticism is fine and fair, and certainly uh, going back and looking at decisions that have been made in the past, it's important to do, and that's pretty much what this whole process has been about. But I think I think it's also fair to say that you need to actually have a bit of a, a rounded perspective, and while it's quite easy to point out the flaws and the problems that people have made in the past, I think it's also important to celebrate the achievements and the, the positive work people have done. So anyway, I, I thoroughly enjoyed going back and forth with a couple of people on uh, mainly Facebook. And uh, at least people are engaging. I hope they, they stay engaged. And, and certainly keep coming back with your feedback. Uh, we've all got to have a bit of a thick skin. So on that same vein, in terms of talking about history, um, it's today's episode is, is going to expand on that. And in fact, we're going to go back even further the golden era, but I'm not going to do it because it would be remiss of me not to try and bring on an expert. And this person is, well, in every sense, an expert. He's a, I think he's a bit of an oracle in terms of Australian rugby history. I certainly have used a lot of his work as a, as as reference material. Former Wallaby Morgan Tiranui, who's also the general manager of the Classic Wallabies, described him as a rugby savant. And in fact, his Twitter profile has a quote from. John Eels saying that he's a part-time Australian rugby statistician and full-time stockbroker. Or is that the other way around? Either way, it's been fantastic to have a chance to chat to Matthew Alvarez, who is currently working with Rugby Australia on developing the statistics that go into a lot of things, including the Classic Wallabies website, where there are profiles on every Wallaby going back from uh, today till the beginning. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that he seems to be gathering along the way. So I had a bit of a chat with him about the work that he does and we tried to sort of discuss some of the, some of the patterns and some of the things that history could teach us. Matthew Alvarez. Matthew, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Matt. Nice to, nice to be here. Look, I, I think it's fair for me to say that I've been making this film and now this podcast for the last 18 months and a lot of the work that you are responsible for with your role with classic uh the classic wallabies and the the rugby um database that presumably sort of exists somewhere has been so crucial for for anyone like me who, who wants to do research find out about you know the history of the game in australia um how did you get involved in that and become a a, a rugby statistician uh, well, it was a, a sort of a left field event, to be honest. Um, it was in the 1990s, early, and a mate of mine invited me to go on ABC Grandstand Club Quiz with Tracy Holmes right. from the ABC at the studios in the city. And 
it was effectively two teams of two going up against each other on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I think it was 10 or 20 questions. And they threw this one at me one day and uh, it was who was or who is Australia's most capped test prop forward. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I don't even recall if we got it right or not. At the time, Andy McIntyre, Tony Daly, we were sort of in that phase where uh, it was very close between the two. And after we left the studio that day, I thought, I must see if I can find some resource that can provide that information for me so that I, I'm more familiar with where the data is or where, where we're up to at that point in history. And it was bloody difficult to find. Yeah, and I guess this is this is pre this is you know pre the the, the advance of the internet. So you're you're looking. Yeah, it's very 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 in the very very early days, if at all. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate that I came across the Rothmans Rugby Annuals, mm -hmm. uh, which yearbooks, which litter my library at the current point in time, and I was able to uh, to find them um, through eBay and through sources that I didn't really have at that oh coming into that time mm. and uh, their data and their the way that they um, recorded all international games per season sort of gave me a starting point to work with. Mm. Uh, and then it was just a matter of building the base so I could work out how many guys had played front row for Australia, how many caps they had won and where we were up to as at 1992 to determine who exactly was the most capped front row forward. And, that's got me to where I am now. I mean, it's just that, that initial journey mm. has now translated into a, you know, twenty-eight year love affair. And and so you, I mean, you you're involved with the Classic Wallabies. Are you sort of part of the Rugby Australia? Um, are, are you an employee or is it more of a volunteer role? Uh, employee, no. Mm. I I was given an honorary statistician by uh, Gary Flowers in two thousand and seven. Yep. Just as their rugby statistician slash historian. Uh, and then in 2016, um, Stephen Hoyles, who was at that time the general manager of the Classic Wallabies, invited me to join the board uh, because they didn't have, apart from Port, Simon Poitabin, they didn't really have anyone that had a great knowledge of pre-1980s. Mm. And you know, given that was 2016, that's 80-odd years of Australian Test Rugby that they had very, or were not familiar with. Yeah, I and I sort of noticed you, you. So you were involved with a book that was written called Wallaby Gold, which was published in two thousand three. Uh, first, first edition, nineteen ninety nine. In right. fact, just which couldn't have come out at a better time, yeah. mind you. <laughs> um, Peter Jenkins, the um, who had worked at Rugby Australia previously, been a, a high profile journalist mm. uh, in Sydney. Uh, he provided all the text. I provided all the stats, and it was sort of something different. Uh, it looked at uh, a small analysis of each individual game and the data to go with it. Yeah. And that's something that hadn't been published before in Australia to the best of my knowledge. And, and you know, I mean, is, is this sort of taking you through the process of actually going and, you know, calling calling up former players and coaches when, when they were living and, and, and contacting clubs around the country? Like how, how far have you gone in terms of trying to collect information? Uh, well, it's um, it's a sort of a bit of a global journey, mm. uh, finding people everywhere. For initially, just getting them to trust who I was, because it didn't, before I had recognition at Rugby Australia, I was literally just 
another bloke in the street. So ringing up players to ask some personal information that we hadn't had recorded and were trying to put together into a single database was pretty difficult because they'd say, well, who the hell are you? Why do you want this? Um, but just in the initial phase after we published the book, I was made the effort to try and visit as many living captains in Australia as I could to get them to sign a copy. And I was fortunate that I, I was able to meet quite a few and sit down and have a good chat, particularly with um, Cole Winden. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure uh, enough people in the modern era know enough about Cole Winden. He was a 20-cap flanker from the 40s and 50s um, who scored 11 tries, which is, in, in those years, is remarkable, particularly yeah. for a fall. Yes. And it's a record that um, uh, was maintained until... 19, uh, 1978, 1980, Brendan Moon went past him. Right. Um, and he'd been a he'd been a runner in the war, and uh, he regaled me with his stories of his time, and then spoke about what it meant to play for Australia. And it really was um, a journey into how these guys, how much they treasured the fact that they were given the opportunity to represent their country playing. A game that they loved. Yeah, it's interesting, I, and it's funny. The minute you said the name, and I, I sort of it twigs because I've sort of been doing research through this journey and going back and looking at certain periods of Wallabies, like when when we were kind of down and when we were up. But certainly, I remember looking at that post Second World War period, which was really interesting because you know, well, the game was just on hold for what, five six years, and um, and then he was obviously part of that group in in that was quite. You know, they they did some memorable things. They toured over over to um, the British Isles and were uh, didn't have a try scored against them, didn't they? In sort of two years, certainly the the, the team with Trevor Allen was very successful. Yeah, um, and sort of set us on a good starting platform post war. Mm. But you know, as you said, we've had some we had some lean periods there before uh, the turnaround really kicked in in the late seventies. Yeah, and and look, we'll probably get to that. I guess I'm still just, you know, and for anyone who who has done this, who, who's listening, it, it's it's well worth getting on the Classic Wallabies website because you, each player, you know, has their vital statistics, but then they have some really interesting backstories, you know, and, and you know, obviously there are, you know, the, the more famous Wallabies like, um, you know, Weary Dunlop and a few others, but there are some just fascinating little anecdotes and stuff. So I was always just curious to know whether that had been, you know, you'd heard it from the horse's mouth or whether it had, you know, perhaps you're citing a biography that had been written years ago or, or you know, news reports or something. Um, it's probably a mixture of all. Um, in about 10 years ago, Max Howell and a couple of his mates got together and, and initially put together the biographies. Um, and they were a great resource. However, uh, within the rugby community, there was some concern that, they were a little uh, critical mm. and particularly of players who had either not been capped but toured or had only played a handful of tests and sort of were dismissed or they were dismissive of them after their test career ended. Yeah. And in fact, what I've found is a lot of them have had much bigger stories to tell. Uh, there's reasons why they may not have gone on and played any more tests mm. um, and tried to find a little bit more of a positive perspective around that. And it's interesting, the things over, over time, you know, I mean, people often get revered or they get, um, 
maybe even vilified and sort of, you know, it's only 20, 30 years later that maybe another version comes out. Have you ever sort of encountered a, uh, you know, a moment where someone has come out with a very alternative uh, theory to what happened or, or just, you know, a, a different account of a player or a team uh, that was, had never been heard before? I can't pin- pinpoint one in particular, mm. although I did recently get com- uh, contacted by the family of a guy who toured um, 47, 48. Yep. And it was the the son of the player, but his his son, so the grandson of the player, had read his grandfather's bio at, at the classic site and shown his dad, and they were horrified. Right. How negative it was about um, the gentleman and mm. literally saying he didn't deserve to be there and it's unclear of what, how he got picked and yeah. so on and so forth. And um, that's sort of not what we're trying to tell. We're trying to tell a good story because for the 900-odd players who've represented Australia at test, test level, there's another 160-odd who went on tours but never played a test match. 130 of those and then another... 60-odd that we've come across mm. who were reserves for a test match but never made it onto the field and so, never won a test cap outside of that. As, and and are, those, are those matches against, um, say, provincial teams on tours or are they matches against, say, countries that weren't recognised by uh, world rugby as internationals? So for all the guys that toured, they've predominantly, the, the majority have played a match wearing an Australian jersey but mm. not against international opposition as oh. far as a, uh, a country is concerned. Yes, they would have played Auckland or Cardiff, um, uh, a, a French selection 15 perhaps, yep. but they haven't played against France or England or New Zealand. Yep. Uh, for the test guys, they've all been, they've suited up for a test match. They sat on the bench and they just didn't make it onto the field that day. Right. So about... 2012, I think it was. I got together in a room with with Peter Jenkins, Jeff Shaw, Jeff Miller, uh, and Poyter, and we tried to nut out the criteria that we would say was acceptable for a, an individual to be to, um, considered a wallaby. Mm-hmm. And there's test capped, which is pretty obvious. There's the guys who go on the tour and play for Australia but aren't don't make it to. Play, uh, win a test jersey mm-hmm. and there's guys who have been selected to go on tours who ended up not playing a game but were part of that uh, team set up at that time and there's these guys who were unused replacements um, who went as close as anybody else they got the jer- they're wearing the jersey on the sideline yeah. but never made it onto the field and we feel that's re- worthy of that recognition even though they're not capped they deserve that recognition as a wallaby. And, and that's what was set in place, as I say, almost 10 years ago now. Mm. And that's literally where, where we've tried to build that database to include all those players who qualified. I, I enjoy um, on Twitter following some of the interactions you have and um, you know, often you'll, you'll, you'll put up sort of really interesting stats and then someone will... Um, query you and you you do seem to have a knack of being able to answer them and even answer fairly obscure questions pretty quickly which suggests to me you're not sort of always looking this up you just it's it's just somewhere in your in your memory do you, do you have have you just got one of those sticky memories for facts or is it just rugby 
No, I wouldn't have said, wouldn't have thought that. It, uh, I mean, I have the resource mm. with me. Mm. Um, well, I've been working from home for now for almost the best part of a year. Yeah. Um, but normally I have the resource close at hand anyway, mm. um, particularly um, for, for instances like that where uh, occasionally I'll get contacted by someone from the domestic press looking to confirm a selection or how long is it since or how many of these and I try to keep it, you know, ensure that I can respond in a pretty uh, quick amount of time just to you know, make sure that one, they're satisfied in what they need and I'm not keeping them waiting. And for them, it, it's easy because they get that uh, immediate response. Do but yeah, on occasion, there are, there are those things that sort of stick in your mind and it's handy uh, on occasion to be able to bring them out, particularly when people are questioning whether the validity of the numbers. Well, do you have a, fa a period in, in Wallaby or Australian rugby history that you find the most sort of just interesting or, or fascinating to, to have researched or studied? I think the period, and I'm only just sort of getting to it now because when we set out to do the, the profile reviews, we started at the modern day and worked backwards. Mm. So I'm only back to about early 1920s. So I've still got about 20, 23 years to go. To get us back to 1899, but that's another 200 players. <laughs> so in those first 20 odd years, we used 200 players, and in the subsequent 100 years, we've used 70, 700. Yeah. So obviously, at that point in time, in the pre-world period, pre-World War One period, the war took its toll. Yeah. Guys just really couldn't commit to playing a lot of footy, and. Uh, there weren't many games. Mm. I think we're looking at maybe 50 tests, perhaps in, uh, into that period to the end of the 1920s from 1899. There just weren't a lot of matches played. So that may, that may actually prove to be a little under what uh, it actually was. In fact, given I'm with you now, I'll probably be able to tell you that up to the end of the 1920s, which is when... Queensland resumed because yes. they went into hibernation at the end of the First World War, or really at the beginning, and didn't come out until 1929 when we played against New Zealand and beat them extraordinarily. We played 63 tests between 1899 and 1928. Wow. And these guys were, uh, in the 20s period, were really just New South Welshmen, and they'd go to New Zealand, mm. or New Zealand or the Maori would come here, and the contests were... Um, were big in those days. They got decent crowds, far more than I think we give them credit for. Yeah. Because rugby in those years, it was an event. It really was. They they could get forty or fifty thousand uh, to turn up to test matches, um, particularly the ones in the UK when the Waratahs travelled in twenty seven, twenty eight. Which which amazingly makes you wonder how much money they were making. I mean, the unions were making, and obviously the players weren't seeing a you know much much yes. at all. Yes. <laughs> which sort of, you know, not surprisingly led to the split. Yeah. And, uh, you know, rugby had a, had a tough time of it. Um, league continued to take and take and take. And maybe that situation changed in the early 2000s when Rogers and Takiri and Sailor came back to Union. Mm. But despite the losses of some wonderful players, the game has continued to flourish, really, although... 
the last two decades, as many have said, have probably been as hard a period to be a fan as any that we've had. And, and, it's, and, and I mean, look, that's obviously one of the focuses of my, well, it's the focus, I guess, of, of what I've been, I've been trying to do. And, and I, you know, one of the, I guess, the first question I'd like to ask you is when you look back at the last hundred plus years of, 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 of our history, are you seeing any parallels in what we're going through now with periods in the past? The one that really stands out to me is how successful we were when Queensland became a force. Right. So you have a look at the 25 years from 1978 to uh, 2002. Queensland uh, had gone from being whipping boys to starting to whip. And they gave New South Wales a couple of WAP fours in the middle of the 70s. Mm. And it was that tour to New Zealand, they called Nelson Ford tries after having uh, swept Wales at home. Mm was really the beginning of uh, a magical period for Australia. Sure, there were some uh, down years in that 25 years, but the ascendancy of Queensland was critical to the success of the Australian team. And since that time, uh, I think apart from, let's exclude 2020 because it ended up really being just uh, Queensland playing Australian teams. Mm. But over that 0203 to 19, Queensland only had four or five winning seasons yeah, at super rugby level. And when Queensland weren't going well, Australia didn't go well. And the correlation is sort of ridiculous. Does that correlation go back prior to the 70s or is it sort of kicking uh, around? The- well, you know, there were times during um, 50s and 60s where Queensland were lucky to have a player in the team. Mm. And not surprisingly, you go back and have a look at the press of the day um, and the New South Wales selections hardly mentioned the fact that there were no Queenslanders. But the mm. Queenslanders really took a greater front to it. I'm not sure that there were any particular players uh, that I could say deserve selection that weren't selected, yeah. but it was just that they were, as a collective, not the force that they became in that 78 to 02 period. It's an interesting kind of way to look at it. And I, I'm just, I've gone back and looked at a few periods. And the other one that stands out to me that seems to be similar to what you're saying was that that 1920s period where, um, and, and I, some people may not know this, but so from, correct me, please correct me, and I know you will if I'm wrong, uh, from 1920 to 1928, Queensland Rugby Union just couldn't field a team. They, they were virtually bankrupt. So there was no Queensland representative team. That's We, we did not play them. Yep. Um, they were sort of in hibernation. Yes. Yeah. But then New South Wales maintained and, and played against international teams. And then in the 90s, the Australian Rugby Union recognised the New South Wales games as as Wallaby matches. They did. Yeah. And well, maybe well have been maybe it was the eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Anyway, right. they did do that, and they also recognised matches played by Australian teams against the Maori. Right. Over history, which uh, has not been a uniform recognition across mm. international rugby. Because Australia, I mean, you know, we we, went, we win in 1929, but by that stage, Queensland have come back into the picture. But, you know, for a few years there, New South Wales have sort of played as as, as Australia, effectively. You know, they, effectively. They, they, didn't, they didn't seem to do, they didn't get beaten by country miles and uh, at all. No, in fact, they were, the Waratahs team that uh, travelled to the UK was highly successful mm. um, and were wonderful representatives of this country and, and mm. the game. But... All those players in that period died without knowing. Mm. 
or just about all of them, died without knowing that they had uh, that those matches were recognised mm-hmm. as tests. Have you ever have you ever met any of their relatives and and been sort of part of that process of being able to kind of acknowledge acknowledge their no not from the twenties I haven't had mm-hmm. that I haven't been fortunate enough to do that um, I have chatted with a couple of people um, and even then they I'm not sure they were aware that um, that recognition had been given in the uh, in that period by uh, Rugby Australia so mm. yeah there is there is some surprise. Um, like if some of the research I've done has been on ancestry and you go back and you find the family line and just trying to find some details about do we know where he was born, when, where he was schooled? And they'd say, why are you asking? I said, well, Jack played test rugby for Australia and they're stunned. <laughs> I had no knowledge because, as I say, the recognition came so much later that it wouldn't have been passed down the family line that, in fact, that's what I had, a player had done. Yeah, right. Do you also archive sort of other um, facets of Australian rugby, things like um, provincial games and um, maybe even like, you know, to some degree clubs or anything like that? No, it's the journey that I started on uh, was always test Australian test rugby mm. and I still haven't finished. So to, to venture into another part of yeah. rugby in this country might not please the family too much given uh, the amount of time that's gone into getting me to where I, the database is today. Yeah. But yes, we've um, we've moved in um, with some data on the women's game in Australia. Yep. So yeah, test, test match level, although the recognition that we look at in terms of our biographies does include sevens, mm. um, uh, which, you know, has become a, a far more prominent part of the Rugby Australia offering as far as the potential to represent your country is concerned. So we try and incorporate schools, sevens, um, age representation mm. in that biography to get a flavour of how a guy has progressed. And, you know, sometimes there's a guy who didn't play first 15, didn't play uh, schools, didn't play age rep, never played sevens, and then just all of a sudden there he is. Some It's, it's not a... There's not a single path to become an Australian test footballer. No. Although many will tell you, oh, you must go, you GPS schools dominate and the like. Not quite sure that's so relevant in this current era. I would have said in the last, in the professional era, we ran some numbers a little while ago, and less than 40% of players who were capped for the first time in the professional era went to a, a GPS school. Wow. It's interesting. I, I've I've interviewed a few people, um, non-players, but you know, people who kind of deep knowledge of the game. And one of them, one of those people was Gordon Bray, and he was making a comment to me about the schoolboys, uh, the Australian schoolboys, and how many guys from public schools were in that first those first few years, and and how that kind of has, you know, dropped away. Have you have you have you noticed that trend? Oh. Massively, yes. Mm. It's been a, it's been a sad, um, sad, something sad to watch, really, because the contribution they made in those early years, and then, of course, quite a few of them went on to become Wallabies, mm. has changed dramatically. Um, you only got to look at the last, last years or two, year or two. There have only been a handful who have come from non-GPS schools. Yes, but those who then go on to become Wallabies. As I say, in the professional era, only 40% have come from GPS schools. 
So that path pathway, whilst great to the schoolboy level, hasn't necessarily given them that next step or they haven't taken that next step. Yeah. And in fact, it's fascinating to go back and have a look at the age representation teams under 20s and even the schoolboys just to mm. see how many names didn't go on to do anything. Yeah. And it, uh, I'd really like to investigate if and when I get to the point of being up to date as I can with the Australian stuff mm. is to go back and find some of these guys and try and understand what stopped you from going on. Was it injury? Was it career? Was it ambition to do something else? Was it another sport? Did you just fall out of love with it? But yeah, it's you go back and have a look at some of those um, sides and you can find them at the Australian schools, uh, rugby schools uh, website. Yeah. And yeah, there's there's a quite a number of players who just didn't go on in the game. And I'd really love to understand why that is or why that was. And, and so it strikes me, and I don't know if this is your remit, but it strikes me that that process and that sort of information could be hugely valuable to Rugby Australia and, and you know, high-performance units and coaches and try, trying to just sort of examine, you know, bet the better ways to try and cultivate junior talent. Yeah, I would agree entirely. And I think um, Raylene, uh, for who I had a lot of time for. She was a tremendous lady. She, her heart was fully in making sure that Australian rugby uh, was the best it could be. Mm. She uh, was very much at the forefront of creating the pathways that have got guys like Harry Wilson, Fraser McRae, uh, you know, firmly in that channel coming into the senior ranks after their schoolboy days. Yep. She was very much at the forefront of getting that put in place, which is, as you say, sort of creating an easier way for these guys to sort of go on in the game as opposed to finishing school and sort of being left to their own devices. Well, you, it just feel, it feels like you can't afford to not create an opportunity for guys because if, if you give them that year or two off to, to you know, play around, if they're any good, rugby league will snap them up or they might even go overseas. Very true. A lot of money. Um, you've only got to go to a... Um, GPS or a representative match uh, in Sydney and walk around the ground and see all the league scouts. They're the ones wearing the peak, the baseball cap, the dark glasses, and they've got the um, they've got their file there with them, um, clipboard, uh, and you know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Do we have, or do you think that there's a scope that Australia, Australian rugby has to try and expand our intellectual property it's it's something that i've sort of spoken to a few people and I'm, i've kind of dealt with it in the documentary and the fact that we we probably didn't hold on to a lot of the the ip as they call it in that that great era 20 years ago as well as we could have and i think there's a number of reasons for that and you know there's i'm sure a few people might even differ but it, it feels though you know the kiwis for instance who have um a couple of academies and stuff they they f it feels as though perhaps we could have done more to create a sort of intelligence hub or for, for want of a better word of of what we've learned through history and where and, and certainly through the early days of professionalism do you think that's something that we're we're trying we could be addressing or we're sort of addressing now i think so but uh, uh, and i think you you've, you're spot on um there's a void there there was an opportunity especially in in the years of great success, where I think the focus fell too much upon the national team at the expense of everything else. 
and there was the hope that um, their success would just drag everything else along. Um, however, once uh, a lot of those greats retired mm. and we were left with a little bit of a void, um, it was quickly obvious that we were in a little bit of strife and we hadn't sort of prepared, I don't think, as well as we could have. Mm. And um, perhaps now that these pathways have been created, um, we will avoid a similar like um, void in the future. Yeah. Well, it feels that issue could be, I think to some degree it's illustrated by the the lack of of, of coaches that we've we've got that are say world class in comparison to say the, the the Kiwis, you know, and case in point, we've got Kiwi coaches now coaching our top teams. But whether that's that was just something that didn't really occur to anyone that hey, maybe we could, should be investing more in coaches rather than just players. Yeah, I would agree. That's that's a very valid point. I mean, guys like who, and fortunately, you know, we've got Scott Wisemantle back now. Yeah. Um, Matt Taylor's back. Um, but Stephen Larkham mm. is probably the most prominent of that successful period who has gone on to be in coaching. Mm. However, for one reason or another, it didn't play out the way I think the market, the the fans would have liked it to. Mm. Rugby Australia would have liked it to. Um, and yeah, I mean, these guys have got phenomenal rugby IP. Justin Harrison, if you ever get a chance to sit down and pick his brain about footy, yeah. he is so insightful. Morgan Turanui, these guys have got a deep understanding of the game. It's just a matter of accessing it and bringing it together and utilising the collective knowledge to make things better. Well, you know, and, and on that point, when you look at the 70s period that you identify, and I, I've, I've trying to sort of actually talk to some people from that area. And one of the, one of the people who I know is, is quite vocal is, was Dick Marks, who was involved in setting up the National Coaching Committee back in the 70s. But that, that seemed to be quite significant as well. For, you know, for the first time, there was this sort of uniform approach to coaching across Australia. Yeah, it was a massive event. And uh, as I understand, there was a, a falling out somewhere along the way. Hmm. And it sort of died a slow death a little bit well he was fired pretty pretty early i think i mean john o'neill filed him but he was fired sort of at sort of 97 98 i think um early on and i don't know whether i again i don't know the circumstances for that but you just you wonder whether that that void was replaced what was filled in some way because obviously there was a the whole purpose of that was to sort of develop ip through coaching in australia yeah no i'm not aware of anything being developed to that um, followed on from Dick and his great successes during that period. Yeah. Which is a shame because you saw the benefit of it and then we're almost seeing the, the lack of benefit from it. Yeah. I mean, again, looking at sort of the work you've done, have you do you more gather information on coaches as well as players? Uh, no, it's really been the, the focus on the players. Mm. Um, there's been a few players who have gone on to be coaches. Yep. Um and quite successful coaches over long periods of time. Mm. Uh, but no, the focus has tr primarily been on their playing career. Yep. During the point in filming, we we, we were in, in a Rugby Australia headquarters and there was this sort of, you know, there's this hall of history there. Um, is is that, a, is that the sort of rugby museum or is there another kind of area that is at Rugby Australia where there's memorabilia and, and kind of stuff that people can access physically? 
can people access physically? Mm. Probably uh, less so. Uh, there is an archive yep. that's got some remarkable um, stuff in it, uh, programs, meeting minutes, photos, uh, video um, that goes back a long way. They've got the original programs from the 1899 series against uh, Great Britain, mm. which were printed on silk. Wow. Um, so there's some... There's some great stuff that they do have. Um, but that said, there's some remarkable collections within Australia. Yeah. Um, former uh, Rugby Australia chairman uh, and former Test Cap Wallaby Peter Criddle. Mm -hmm. um, it was probably one of the finest program collections anywhere in the world. Uh, and there's a local guy in Sydney, uh, just lives on uh, in the Northern Beaches, who has uh, a collection similarly of programs and other memorabilia that's as, as good, if not equal to um mm. to Peter. So in you know there are individual collectors who've been very helpful in getting me to where I am today because I can go back, I can see what was officially put together at that time. And you know, there's little bios in all those programs and it can give me an insight into a guy that maybe I didn't know. Mm. But yeah, there's there is that resource in at Rugby Australia. It is the archive as such. The idea was to develop a museum out at Moore Park. Yeah. It just hasn't taken shape given what's happened in the last uh, year or so. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I think it would be one of those things that would be fascinating because it, I guess my next question that's sort of leading into is, have you observed any interest in, you know, the Wallaby legacy and history from certain age groups? Well, no, not in particular. I wouldn't say that. Um, they come in all shapes and sizes and all eras. Mm. Some who've known players from bygone eras who've, who've rung in to say, oh, I read that, I just want to correct that for you. Mm. Or as I say, the young guy who read his grandfather's bio the other day and showed it to his dad and they were horrified <laughs> by what it, what it said is, you know, made me go back and do a little bit more research into into the individual and, and try and make the story more accurate yeah. and make the story more positive. I guess, I guess the question I'm trying to get at is is more about where, whether you think enough younger fans, you know, followers of rugby are aware of our, our history and even our legacy of the past. Not, I mean, I'll use the example. I, I, my last episode, I looked at the golden era and, and we heard from, um, you know, coach Rod McQueen, captain Eels and CEO John O'Neill. And you just sort of them talking about that period in the nineties to up to the world cup. And, you know, I put it together because for me, that, that was my experience of rugby. I, I started watching rugby in the nineties, sort of a young kid. And, you know, I just knew, I only knew us as world champions and okay, we had a couple of bad years, but then we came back and it was only when I started to look a bit more, that I was like, wow, I didn't realize actually for most of the 20th century, we were kind of middle of the pack, you know, getting th thumped by the Kiwis and also struggling against the British home nations. And, it, but you know, that's obviously me going out of my way to try and find it. I'm curious to know whether enough kids today, especially kids under 20 who have probably watched the last two decades and just seen us getting thumped by the Kiwis every year uh, with a few exceptions, but whether or not enough are aware of, you know, the, the, the rise of us in the seventies, the, the grand slam of 84, the, the, the 86 sort of tour to New Zealand um, and so on and so forth. And I guess I'd say no. I mean, I don't, I just don't see them quite being as engaged. I mean, my 18 year old son has never seen us beat New Zealand. Yeah. Um, not that his interest in the game is, is zero, but he and his mates, they just do different things. And 
I think perhaps what uh, we need to provide is a avenue whereby that story can be told. Mm. Um, it is in a small way at Rugby Australia. There is a, uh, but I think if it could be complemented by video that uh, showed 78 against Wales, 78 against New Zealand, um, the 82 tour when Campisi debuted, 84 Grand Slam, mm. 86 to New Zealand, when they were just the fourth team ever to beat New Zealand in New Zealand. I mean, that, that was a phenomenal period. Yeah. Um, we should be making, my view is, we should be making a greater effort to ensure that the access to vision and that story is available mm. and then how to uh, make the kids of today aware of that is really through those social media type situations. Yeah. But if we could present it in a way that made it easy for them, and you know what they love looking at their phone mm. 24-7, <laughs> I think that would be a, a great way to sort of bring them on board with what has been, what how the journey has played out. Yeah. And I think for me, the purpose of that, and, you know, it's obviously love to, we all love to look back with rose tinted glasses, but, you know, the purpose I think is, is to learn and, and understand what made us so good in the, in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, because a, a lot of the conditions then are still the same. We were still the third, third football code in Australia. We were still participation wise, smaller than the, the, the French and, and the English. And, um, you know, the, a lot of those things are still valid today. So, and that's part of what I've been trying to do is to try and sort of go back and go, well, you know, does history teach us anything? And can we learn anything from our own our own history that we could put into practice today? Well, we were most successful when we only had three super super rugby teams, mm. really, um, and even more when we only had two. However, mm. um, the expansion, the bringing in of the Brumbies in '96 was a, was a massive event, yeah, because it gave those players just on the edges that opportunity, and boy, they took it with both hands. It was. Um, it was very refreshing, but then the taking us out to five seemed to leave us too thin. Yeah, the quality across the board declined, and that was a major issue that I'm not sure we've quite got over yet. Mm. I mean, you've only got to look at the force this year. They've got a great team, but how many of them are actually eligible to play for the Wallabies is another matter altogether. I'm, I'm calling them, and look, the force of my team because I'm a Perth boy, but I'm calling them the Force Barbarians because I think that's what, what they are. <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably fair. And and I think as a, as a team, um, they will be more competitive with the lineup that they have. Yeah. But they're not. We're not going to. The Wallaby journey is not possibly going to be enhanced by the fact that the eligibility of their list is much smaller than it is mm. for the other four. It's interesting, kind of looking at those sort of Super Rugby teams and their formation. And, and if you can, well, the biggest difference that separates the the the, the Brumbies from, say, the Force and the Rebels later on that I could see when I was sort of looking into it was the existence of a team like the Kookaburras. So, I mean, the Brumbies were actually a – it was a team kind of that they were already made up of that then kind of got stronger when they brought in more players. But the – yeah, the, the sort of the, the influence and the growth of the Kookaburras in those years leading up seemed to be very significant. Oh, absolutely. They were playing club football in Sydney. Mm. I think they played the – 94 or 95 grand final against Gordon. Yeah. So they were, they were they, as you say, they were already a unit before we got to that next point. I think um, part that for me as a, as, a, as a fan that I'm sort of hoping to come out of this documentary, and I think certainly something I 
love the work you do and you know following this i'd love to be helpful in some ways is as i said it's just sort of trying to kind of celebrate the history in the past and bring it to the future and my my i sometimes wonder whether we're there's this attitude of we, we've always got to look look forward you know look 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 ahead the brighter time, times ahead and sometimes i feel like actually you need to go back a few steps before you can go forward again and i feel that in in one sense with australian rugby our focus does need to go back a little bit and look at what actually what actually worked and also what made fans love rugby and how can we capture that and then capture uh, go go forward again yeah no that's a very valid observation i think there's if you're not learning anything from your past or or periods where things don't go as well as they could have mm. uh, that's not going to benefit you going forward ignoring them won't help yeah and in a way we possibly have done that over, over the last decade or so because apart from 2015 it's been a pretty lean period in major competition mm. and i think when it's on a, uh, a global scale as the world cup is to get those young fans excited success is a, a big part of that so yeah if we can, if we can find that success whether uh, and whether it is using our history to work out where we've gone wrong and how we can go better going forward um success will certainly play a big part in that Mate, look, uh, uh, a couple more questions. It just occurred to me. Do, sure. Have you have you ever, through the, this process, actually examined other countries? I mean, New Zealand's the most obvious one, just because you, I assume you're looking at team lineups and, you know, and have you ever been able to sort of put together any sort of stat, stats or interesting analysis on, on, on New Zealand or any other countries? Uh, I haven't put any together specifically, but it's been more observations along the way whereby you something that Ben Darwin always looks at is cohesion mm. uh, and, you know, the changes in the New Zealand test side uh, are rare yeah. and the changes in the Australian test side, particularly in the last period, have been um, very consistent. Yeah, I think during the checker era, we only had, and I'm not exactly sure of this number, but I think we only twice played the same 15 week to week yes in the five years he was in charge yeah on on the last episode of this podcast which was looking at that golden era i actually made a well, john o'neill drew drew the it made the point but then i sort of looked at it and talked about it that 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 world cup winning team with the exception of phil kearns who got injured was basically the same team with i think one ex, i'm sure you'll correct me one, one exception in the second row it was the same team that um won against england in uh, 76 nil in that um, thumping in uh, 1998. So, you know, that two-year period, that team did not, just didn't really change much at all. And I guess they're winning, so there was no need to change them. But It does make a difference. Yeah. That W column, it um, can completely change the whole dynamic. Yeah. Because very few people change winning teams. You're right. And, yeah, if you have a look at that... Um, 76 nil that was a um i'll never forget it i can't quite fathom that it actually played out the way that it did mm. because i'm not sure anyone actually saw that coming yeah but yeah that whole that whole team bar oh tommy bowman may not have played that's it yes yeah no it was in the world cup final yeah um but was i think he went away with the team anyway mm. so yeah you look at that that streak of uh wins they had 
you know, consistent consistency of selection is crucial mm. to maintaining momentum. In terms of excitement and drama, and is there a Wallaby game in in history that you could counter that you just think is is fascinating in terms of the game that that it was? Well, sadly, it's a loss. <laughs> um, it was the game in two thousand at Stadium Australia, yeah, of course, um, when Jonah scored uh, in the last minute or so yeah. uh, to steal the game, 39-35. Um, still the most amazing game of footy I've ever seen. Yeah. I think we were down 24-0 within the first 10, and at halftime we were level. And then to think we got in front only for Jonah to steal it at the death. Mm. It really was um, – I, I, was, I was a great thing to be there just to see that, even though it was a loss. Yeah. I've been to bad wins, but that as a loss mm. was the best game I've ever seen. And I'll never never forget the just the, the crowd, uh, the electricity within the crowd for the match. I mean, it just had you on the edge of your seat for the whole 80. Yeah. I think John Eels made up for it the week later, though, didn't he? <laughs> uh, yeah, we went all right. There were some, well, the, the, the finish, some finishes. There's been some great finishes, yeah. uh, no doubt. But that is a match. It really quite does take the cake, mate. Do you think you're going to write another book, or or put? Would you be on, another book be on the cards in the next few years? Oh, I hope so. Mm. I'd love to think that we can get Wallaby Gold um, uh, republished and be for uh, the third version, um, more accurate. Mm. And I've just got to probably find somebody who can sit down and write the match by match text. I mean. Yeah. We have a look at the period. I think, two, as I said, 2003 was the update. Mm. Um, at an average of 15 tests a year, that's, that's a few tests that need to be written up. <laughs> so, yeah, no, look, I would love to be able to do that. Both my kids have now left school, so there may be some uh, more free time in my life to dedicate to getting that uh, up and done. And it'd be nice if it was done by 2023. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. But, yeah, by the middle of the decade, I'd hope to think that that was uh that will come to fruition. Oh, fantastic! Well, I'll, I'll definitely look out for that. And who knows if my podcast is still running by then, you can come back on and we can uh, discuss it and probe and and hopefully uh, celebrating some better times for the Wallabies. I'd enjoy that very much. Excellent, Matt. Well, look, thanks very much. And um, yeah, once again, just thank you also for all the work you do. Because for someone like myself who has been digging deep into this subject for last year it's been a great resource and i know there are other people that probably use it for their own purposes but it's um you know, i think highly valuable to, to have this sort of material compiled and from now into the future so yeah thanks very much for that, that work and yeah it's um it's it's been a great journey i've enjoyed it a lot uh in fact just this week alone i got the chance to sit down and chat with laurie lawrence oh wow who most most australians will um, identify as being um, the great swimming coach, mm. uh, but very few Australians will identify that he went away to New Zealand in 1964 as Ken Catchpole's backup halfback. Yeah, amazing. Just a, a phenomenal story. Born with a born with a lung disease, saw one of his lungs removed as a boy, and ended up playing rugby for Australia. It's, a, it's those sort of stories that have made made um, all the research worthwhile. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Oh, wait, looking forward to to hearing more about that. And and yeah, mate, I'll uh, I'm definitely a follower and a fan. So yeah, thanks very much, and and I do appreciate you coming on and having a chat to us.
Matt, thank you very much. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Cheers, mate. Cheers. So if you want to know more about the history of Australian rugby, there is uh, that book that we mentioned, Wallaby Gold, The History of Australian Rugby by Peter Jenkins. And of course, you can just jump on the Classic Wallabies website, which is free, and go through the list of all the different Wallabies that have played for Australia and get some interesting backstories. This episode was one of those ones that I wanted to do at the very start of this process because I myself had started by looking into our history and just trying to get a bit of context to where our game has been prior to where we are now. And I had a follow-up email from, from Matt after our chat and he wanted to bring up a couple of points that we didn't discuss which he thought were pretty important. And, and one was that looking at Australian rugby from a complete perspective, so from when we played our first game in 1899, it's interesting to see that we've played 647 tests and of those games, 285 have been against either New Zealand and South Africa. Now, that's about 44%, or roughly two in every five games. So when you're playing New Zealand and South Africa, two in every five games, it makes sense it's going to be tough to have a win record of 70-80%, like we used to have during the golden era. That's the first point. The other interesting fact that he said was that when the Wallabies had their first game in 1899, we won against the, the British team. They weren't called the British Lions then, but they were effectively a British team. However, we then lost the next three in that four-game series. And the Wallaby all-time win rate only went north of 50% in their 479th test, which was in 2008 against France in Sydney. Right now, the Wallabies all-time win rate sits at 50.5%. Of course, we've gone backwards in the last uh, 12, 13 years. But it's interesting to think that it took, well, well over 100 years for us to get our all-time win rate over 50%. So, you know, in these sorts of contexts, it makes that remarkable run that we had from the 1970s to the golden era of the early 2000s, you know, all the more remarkable, but all the more anomalous in the wider history of Australian rugby. Anyway, there's so much more that you can probably do. I'd love to hear from, from other people about what they think are interesting things, whether they're things we should, should be looking at, things that we've ignored, whether any of this has any relevance to where we are today. Um, some people are probably arguing that, you know, this is all irrelevant because the game has changed. But, you know, I disagree. I think history's always got pretty good lessons to be learned. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and once again, get on the, the Facebook page, send me a message, uh, give, us a, give us a like or a subscribe and please share uh, the podcast and the Facebook page with as many of your friends as possible. Obviously, I'd like to grow this and get more people listening to it, but obviously more people from the rugby community who I think might be interested in this sort of stuff. This is the Gold Digger podcast series a spin-off from the new feature documentary film Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durrant, and sponsored by 
whoever wants to reach out and pay me to have their name up in lights. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby. Follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.